So last week we finished a series on Jonah entitled Surprised by Grace. It was, uh, it was sad for me to end that series. I was telling everybody on Wednesday nights that I learned so much in preparation for those sermons. And every Sunday morning for me was uh, the equivalent of standing next to a group of people that I love in front of the Grand Canyon and going, look at that. I got to stand up every Sunday and show you what I discovered, what God showed me. Um, and so it was bittersweet that it ended. Um, this week, uh, we're starting a new series that I've entitled Echoes of Hope. Um, and the reason that I entitled this series Echoes of Hope is because as we make our way to Christmas, I want to look at some very familiar Old Testament people and passages and show you that Jesus doesn't simply show up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That when God promised in Genesis chapter 3 that one day the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent, he was announcing a rescuer that would one day come and clean up the mess that we made. And the entire Old Testament is, is an unfolding of that promise that the entire Old Testament points to that rescuer that God promised in um, Genesis chapter 3. This morning, I want to look at, I said we're going to look at some very familiar Old Testament passages and people, um, and so this isn't going to make a whole lot of sense to you, but I want us to look at Romans chapter 5, which is a New Testament book. Um, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, and reading down through verse 19, just two verses You'll understand why I chose these verses uh, in a few minutes to launch this series. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. Is that right? No, beginning in verse 18. My eyes are so bad. I'm, I'm trying so hard to resist getting glasses. I, I really am. It's just, I know, I know. It's pure vanity on my part and pride that prevents me from going to CVS and getting a pair of readers. And when I have to borrow them, I usually have to borrow Stacy's, and they're like different colors and like cheetah color, and they're like all fancy. And I look like an idiot. I just need a pair of like black glasses, you know? But needless to say, sorry. I know, you should feel sorry for me. I'm getting old and decrepit. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. A number of years ago, uh, there was a church that was announcing a new sermon series called Hero that they were going to be launching that Sunday. And this was the description that they gave. Jonathan was the son of the king who gave up his life to defend a nation. Rahab was a prostitute whose faith and courage stood firm in the face of opposition. David was a forgotten shepherd boy who became the king of a great nation. Joseph overcame the prison to rise to his place in the palace. How can we find the faith to live an extraordinary life? 
Join us for this four-week series and learn to live the life of a hero. Now, if you've been here for more than 10 minutes, I think you would probably already assume and understand that that's ridiculous to me, okay? Um, I mean, that is really not the point of those stories, Now, I understand why a sermon series promising to help you live like a hero is attractive, okay? I know why it's attractive to me, because ever since the Garden of Eden, we've wanted to be what only God is. But in the end, the promise to help you become a hero is not good news. In fact, it's very bad news. It's actually an invitation to slavery, is what it is. You see, we often read the Bible as if it were fundamentally about us. That the Bible is fundamentally about our improvement, our life, our faith, our faithfulness, our commitment, our devotion, our morality, and so on and so forth. And as a result, we treat the Bible like it's a heaven-sent self-help manual. It's the way many people read it. It's a book of morals. The focus of the Bible, however, is not our work for God. The focus of the Bible is God's work for us. The Bible is not fundamentally about us at all. The Bible is fundamentally about Jesus. I have a a good friend named Sally Lloyd-Jones who wrote an amazing children's storybook Bible, which I highly recommend for all adults. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. I promise you, I consult it regularly as I'm preaching sermons. It's absolutely stunning. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And anybody who's read it can testify to that fact. But she begins um, her Jesus Storybook Bible with these words by way of introduction of of the Bible, the Storybook Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it. But most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid. They run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't primarily a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in the puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. The Bible tells one story. And it points to one figure. Everything in the Old Testament predicts God's rescuer, and everything in the New Testament presents God's rescuer. So the Bible tells one story, and it points to one figure, 
St. Augustine, the early church father, put it like this. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Bible is one unified whole telling one story and pointing to one figure. Jesus is the point of every part of the Bible. Jesus is the climax of every theme from the Bible. And Jesus is the true and better version of every person in the Bible. The Bible is a picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And this means that the Bible is not a book about good people making their way up to God. It's a book about God making his way down to sinful people. That's what it means. That the, the Bible is not a, a recipe book for, for good living. The Bible is a revelation book of Jesus who is the only answer to our bad living. Now, I find it amazingly encouraging as I read the Bible that God only comes to broken, guilty, non-heroic characters. I find that incredibly encouraging. It's good news because it means that he comes for people like me. And he comes for people like you. You see, the, the Bible makes clear that God is in the business of pursuing doubters and deniers and adulterers and murderers and idolaters and failures of every kind. I mean, I say this all the time. God only loves flawed people because flawed people are all that there are. So for the next five weeks leading up to Christmas, I, I want to look at some well-known Old Testament figures and show that while none of them are real heroes, all of them point to the real hero, namely Jesus. And this week, I want to look at Adam who is mentioned not by name, specifically in Romans chapter 5, but he is mentioned explicitly in those two verses. Now, I know what you're thinking. No one is in danger of making Adam a hero. Okay, you're going, okay, if we're going to sort of debunk this idea that there are, uh, that, you know, these people are heroes, that Jesus is the only hero, um, then you're choosing the wrong person to start with because no one's in danger of making Adam a hero. I mean, Joseph, Joshua, David, maybe, but not Adam. I mean, isn't that the idiot who screwed it up for everybody? Why would we want to copy him? Okay. Um, the truth is, though, that there is no one that we emulate more than Adam. Okay, we may not try to intentionally imitate him, but we are just like him. Okay, now to prove this, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 3, all the way at the beginning of the Bible, um, and briefly retell you kind of what, what's happening there. Um, God created all things good, and he entrusted everything he made to Adam and Eve. He gave them full reign of the Garden of Eden and basically said, you can do whatever you want. Uh, there's only one thing I'm going to ask you not to do. Don't eat from that tree. And the name of that tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He gave Adam and Eve a, a test. And so they were going about living their lives. They had everything they needed and more. And uh, one day, the devil, in the form of a snake, shows up and says to Adam, um, did, uh, did God tell you that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Which is not what God said. The devil was twisting God's words, and Adam rightly corrected him and said, no, he didn't say that. He said, uh, we could eat 
we could eat of every tree except for that one. So then the devil shifts his strategy and says, well, you know why God doesn't want you to eat from that one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because he knows that the moment you eat of that tree, you will be just like him. And he's very insecure and he's very jealous and, and he doesn't want you to be like him. He wants you to be slavishly dependent on him. He doesn't want you to be autonomous. He doesn't want you to be independent. He wants you to have to need him. So he doesn't want you to eat from that tree. But if you do, you will be like God. Well, that was too good to pass up for Adam and Eve. And so they ate from the tree and their eyes were opened and for the first time they saw that they were naked, the Bible says. They saw that they were, apart from God, completely undressed and on their own. See, Adam and Eve fell into sin, but the word fall is kind of misleading because their sin was not a plunge into something low. It was, it was an upward rebellion is really what it was. It was an upward fall. Um, what they were really saying is, I don't want you to be my God. I want to be my own God. And we've been doing this ever since the Garden of Eden, all of us. Um, my struggle, okay, and this has been my struggle as it pertains to this story for almost my entire life. My, my struggle has always been this, my theological struggle with this has always been this. Okay, I, I get it. Adam screwed up. Adam and Eve, they screwed up. But that was Adam. That wasn't me. I wasn't the one in the garden making that decision. I, I, why do all of us have to suffer because of one guy's stupidity? Okay, that's just, that's just not fair. Why do I have to suffer for that? I mean, had I been chosen instead of him, I would have passed the test. Okay, see the assumption there? We think it's unfair that this guy representing the entire human race, made a decision on behalf of the entire human race, and now we are the ones suffering. We are the victims of a decision that someone else made way back when. The assumption there is that had we been there, we would have chose differently. We would not have made the mistake. We would not have made such a stupid decision the way Adam did. But here's how I've sort of uh, made my way through that theological minefield and come to peace with it. Um, God is the one who chose Adam to be the representative of the entire human race. God chose him. And that means this, that there is no time in human history when you or I were more perfectly represented than in the Garden of Eden because our representative was chosen infallibly and perfectly by an infallible and perfect God. And what that means is that every single one of us would have done the exact same thing Adam did, which is why his sin is our sin. Um, plus, now, just in case we go, okay, but that's, it's still not fair that one guy representing all, we, all of us have to suffer because of what one person decided. It's not fair. We should be able to represent ourselves and not have a representative chosen for us. Well, before you go down that road, let me just say that if we object 
to God's allowing one person to act for everyone, then that would be the end of Christianity, okay? Because according to the verses I read in Romans, our whole redemption rests on the same principle that through the actions of another man, we are saved. Okay, so if if we say, well, it's not fair that Adam represented me. We shouldn't have to endure the consequences of a decision that we didn't make. Well, if you want to do that and say that, that's fine. But then Christianity goes down the toilet. Because what these verses tell us in Romans is that as one man represented all of us, and as a result, we all sinned, another man, after that man, came representing all of us and therefore saved us. Um, so the, the Bible describes three monumental transfers, okay? This is just sort of big picture Bible stuff. The Bible describes three monumental transfers. Adam's guilt to us, our guilt to Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness to us, okay? So these are the transfers that happen. We, we become guilty in Adam, okay? Uh, our guilt goes to Jesus on the cross, and Jesus' righteousness comes to us, free of charge. So the greatest proof that we would have chosen exactly as Adam chose shows itself by the fact that we spend our lives trying to be our own God. We do this. I mean, it's, it's inescapable every day of our lives. And while being our own God might seem liberating at first, um, and mind you, the same promise that the serpent made to Adam and Eve, you will be like God, is the promise we get every day out there. Every day. Every advertising campaign under the sun may not be using those words, Every marketing campaign under the sun may not be using those words, but what they're essentially selling you is divinity. You can be your own God. You can be independent. You can, if you accomplish this or if you purchase this or if you can accumulate these things, then you will be saved. You will be rescued. You will be happy. You'll be content. You'll be filled with joy. You can save yourself if you just put your mind to it and become something great, or whatever the case may be. Um, So being our own God might seem liberating at first, but you quickly realize, if you're self-aware at all, that it makes life very heavy, and it makes life very hard. I mean, when you feel disappointed with life, okay, when you you can't overcome your bad habits, when you are paralyzed by the the guilt of failure, when you want to be loved but you're still single, when you hit midlife and you realize that you're not where you thought you'd be, when you feel rejected by someone whose acceptance you crave, when you are contemplating mess-ups that you can't change, uh, when you can't seem to get over the fact that he left you, does being your own God bring you any comfort? I mean, most of what happens in our lives happens completely outside of our control. We, can't, we, we may have some, and I emphasize the word some measure of success, in terms of uh, being able to establish some self-control, but we have zero control over anything or anybody outside of us, none. We barely have any control at all when it comes to anything inside of us, 
okay? That's a whole other sermon for a whole other time. But we have such little control over things. I remember one of my mentors telling me years ago um, that one way to test just how addicted to control you are is to ask yourself what goes on inside of you when you're in the middle of a traffic jam, okay? Now, I mean, this is, he was speaking my language, okay? Because there is nothing that uh, exposes my own addiction to control like a traffic jam, okay? I am absolutely convinced that if everybody on planet Earth drove exactly like me, we would all be safer, we would all get to where we're going quicker, and the world would be a much better place for all of us, okay? Um, and But his point was well taken. When you are in, or in his case, he was describing how he feels in an airplane, when he has zero control over the takeoff, the landing, the turbulence when they're in the air, and how, how not being in control can make you so anxious, can make you so tense. We experience that when it comes to our children. We experience that when it comes to the stock market. We experience that when it comes to our work. We experience that when it comes to our marriage or other relationships we may have. We experience that when it comes to our own tendencies and our own proclivities. You know, Paul says in Romans 7, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I know I shouldn't do, I keep on doing. I mean, that's us. He's describing all of us. Um, so... Being our own God may promise some measure of freedom, but at the end of the day, it brings us no comfort at all. It makes life hard. It makes life heavy. Being God is, is too big a job for us because now if we decide to take upon ourselves the role of being God for us, now all of the stability and love and meaning and worth that we long for, we have to go out and get for ourselves. We have to achieve it. We live with the burden of thinking that if we're going to be loved, we must make ourselves lovely. That if we're going to be valued, we have to make ourselves valuable. That if we're going to be accepted, we have to somehow make ourselves acceptable. And this makes us all liars. Because now we have to conceal the worst parts like we talked about last week and accentuate the best parts. And we're never actually telling the truth about ourselves. Why? Why do we lie, for instance? It's just a basic question. Why do we lie about anything? Because whatever it is, we need someone to believe something about us that is not true if we're going to get their acceptance in a particular moment or we're going to get their approval in a particular moment or whatever the case may be. We are needing their approval. We're needing their acceptance. We're needing their validation. We're needing their respect if we're going to feel alive, if we're going to feel accepted, approved, loved, validated, whatnot. Um, we live with these burdens. So ever since the Garden of Eden, we have been trying to secure for ourselves what only God can give us. And that means that independence is not freedom. Okay, self-dependence is not freedom. It's slavery. Being our own God is not a life of control and rest. It's a life of chaos. It's a life of exhaustion. It's a life of lying. Remember the I've quoted this famous line from Chris Rock, the comedian, many times, where he says, when someone first meets you, they're not meeting you, they're meeting your representative, okay? We do this. I mean, we do it all the time. We talk about that all the time here. Um, what we really need is to be rescued from ourselves. 
What we really need is to be set free from the slavery to self that all of us are plagued with. So when God promised in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve disobeyed God, rebelled against God, and God says, okay, this changes everything. And from now on, we will be broken people, he says, living in a broken world with other broken people. Things are going to be hard. Things are not the way that God originally designed them to be. But rather than abandon us in the mess that we made, he made a promise. And he said to Adam and Eve then, one day, sometime down the road, at a time that will be, uh, that is currently unannounced, he said, the seed of the woman will one day come and crush the head of the serpent. That was a very um, poetic, beautifully theological way of God saying, I'm going to come and clean up the mess that you made. I would be completely justified in saying, I gave you guys a shot, you blew it, I'm out, I'm going to Venus. I'll create new people and we'll do something different, okay? No, he says, I'm I'm, gonna, I'm going to clean up this mess that you made. I am going to send one who will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Um, so when God promised that the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the head of the serpent, he was saying freedom is on the way. He was pointing to a second Adam. He was pointing to another garden. And he was pointing to a different tree. Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 5, the verses that I read, that Jesus is the second Adam. Well, well what does that even mean? I mean, that, that, you know, that's very ethereal. What, what does that mean, that Jesus is the second Adam? I mean, I, I read the verses, he says, just as by one man uh, we all died, so by the actions of another man we are all made alive. Uh, what, what does that even mean, that, that Jesus is the second Adam? See, Adam was tested in the garden. It was a test to let God be God. Adam failed, and as a result, everyone died. Death became a part of life. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose perfect grade is now given to us. Put it this way. The first Adam turned from the Father in a garden. The last Adam turned to the Father in a garden. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus goes before his Father and says, if there's any other way to do this, can you do it another way? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I will follow you. Adam disobeyed in a garden and all died. Jesus obeyed in a garden, and all are made alive. Um, the first Adam's sin brought thorns to us. Remember what God said? Now your work's going to be hard, he says to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Part of your punishment, punishment for the whole human race, is work is going to be hard. It's going to be necessary. It's not always going to be enjoyable. There are going to be things about your work that you hate, that you just have to do. The first Adam's sin brought thorns to us. The last Adam wore a crown of thorns for us. These are all things that are very intentional, okay? This isn't just like, you know, I'm putting together things that the Bible didn't put together. This is exactly the, the correlation and the connection is intentional by God. 
The first Adam substituted himself for God. The last Adam was God substituting himself for us. The first Adam sinned at a tree. The last Adam bore our sin on a tree, the cross. The first Adam brought condemnation on mankind. The last Adam brought salvation for mankind. This is, when the Bible talks about first Adam, second Adam, this is what it's talking about. That where Adam failed in Eden, Christ succeeds in Gethsemane. That Adam's selfishness in the Garden of Eden took life from us. Jesus' selflessness in the Garden of Gethsemane gave life to us. So you see, the, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man, for us. For you, for me. We rebel against God and we put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where only he deserves, where only we deserve to be. That's, that is the work. That is the, the summary of Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Um, Stacy and I watch a lot of a ton of movies and series, and uh, I would say that one of our favorites over the last two or three years was one called The Kaminsky Method. I don't know how many of you saw it. I know we recommended it to some of you, and you watched it. Um, it's three seasons long. Uh, it's Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin, and Michael Douglas plays a retired actor, um, and he now owns uh, an acting school, and uh, Alan Arkin is his agent and has been his best friend for many, many years, and it's just a story about two men as they're aging and their relationship. It's really, really good. They're best friends, and they go through the ups and downs of life together, um, and uh, Alan, Arkin's, Alan Arkin's character is named Norman Newlander. And uh, his wife is suffering from cancer and eventually dies. And so Michael Douglas is trying to figure out how, how to comfort his best friend because he loved, he loved Norman's wife also. They were all really good friends. And so he's trying to figure out how to comfort his best friend. And he doesn't know what to say. And sometimes he says the wrong thing. But he asked him, he asked his agent, Alan Arkin, Norman Newlander, to come to his acting studio um, and talk about what it means to be human for his students, for Michael Douglas's students. And this was one of the most powerful scenes, if not the most powerful scene in all three seasons. Uh, Alan Arkin stands up and he says, do you want to know what it's like to be human? Is that something you want to know? He's saying this to the students. Fine, I'll tell you. It hurts to be human. It hurts like hell. And all the exploring in the world doesn't make that hurt go away because every human being and being every, because being human and being hurt, he says, are the same damn thing. He's right. I was watching it and thinking to myself, that's me. That's all of us. See, I'm, I'm a desperate man. And if what we say here week after week isn't true, if Christianity is something different than what we trumpet here, I don't have a shot. Either do you. 
I need a savior who saves the faithless and the weak. Not a savior who saves the faithful and the strong. Because if my strength is my hope, I'm done. If my faithfulness is my hope, I'm done. The, the gospel is not good news to do it yourselfers. It's only good news to the I give uppers. People who have come to the end of their resources have accepted their own powerlessness and recognize that the only way out is up. I mean, I, have, I was thinking about this yesterday. I have abandoned God my whole life. Every day of my life. So have you, by the way. Um, every act and ounce of imperfection in us is an abandonment of God. I have abandoned God my whole life. But he has never once abandoned me. Not once. So my hope does not rest in my strength or my faithfulness or my commitment or my devotion or my progress in sanctification or however you want to put it. My hope rests solely and exclusively on the work of someone else on my behalf. See, I, if, if the hope of life depends on us in any way, our ingenuity, our endurance, our search for something or someone that will fill the void we feel, we will be lost. And most people are. A better marriage, a better relationship with our kids, a better job, better health, more financial security. None of this can save us. None of this can fill that God-shaped void that all of us have. The hope of life rides on the shoulders of another, one who succeeded where we fail. One who was strong for us, obedient for us, pure for us, righteous for us. That's where our hope rests. The whole point of these verses, of Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, the whole point of these verses is that God is not a God of second chances. I know we hear that sometimes and that's supposed to give us comfort, but it brings me no comfort. I don't know about you. I, mean, I need a lot more than a second chance. Okay, so do you. I know we say that sometimes, like, isn't it good that God is a God of second chances? We need a lot more than a second chance. We need a lot more than a billion chances. Okay, so the whole point of these verses is not God is the God of second chances. It's God is the God of one chance. We blew it. And he's the God of a second Adam. So that in him, everything we need and everything we long for and everything we search for is ours because of what he has done. And now the guilt of our failure and our shame and all of that stuff, our faithlessness, our weaknesses, um, all of the ways in which we give in to selfishness and so on and so forth, our secrets, our struggles, our sins, all of that stuff, none of that is now held against us in God's court because it was all held against Jesus. 
Paul tells us in Corinthians that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. Well, if he's not counting our sins against us, then it begs the question, who is he counting our sins against? And Paul goes on to say, he counts our sins, all of our infirmities, all of our failures, all of our imperfections, all of the ways in which we indulge ourselves destructively, everything that we do that falls short of perfection is counted against Jesus, not us. So remember the three transfers. Adam's guilt transferred to us. Our inherited guilt now transferred to Jesus. And Jesus' achieved righteousness transfers to us. So that we now live our lives under a banner that reads, it is finished. It's a done deal with God. It is a done deal with God. Absolutely done deal. Um, so the whole point of these verses is not that God is the God of second chances. He's the God of one chance and a second Adam. Or in the words of John Henry Newman's hymn, O Loving Wisdom of Our God. Gosh, I was just reacquainted with this hymn last night. I mean, it, 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 there's, this is so uh, beautiful and profound and poetic and deep. He says this, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love that flesh and blood which did in Adam fail should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam. Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. Let's pray together.